The story is told that uh, P.T. Barnum of the circus fame delighted in showing off an exhibit he called The Happy Family, in which lions, tigers, and panthers sat in a cage together around a lamb without harming it. When a visitor asks if the animals lived in harmony, Barnum's press agent replied, apart from replenishing the lamb now and then, <laughs> they get along very well together. Isn't that a great story? But you know, well, we can laugh at that, but the irony of it is, and, and, and really what that story illustrates is that man's attempts to replicate the kingdom of Jesus always end in failure, don't they? But when Jesus our King comes, there will be true peace on earth. And the prophet Isaiah describes the effect. Isaiah 11:6 and following says, And the wolf will dwell with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little boy will lead them. Also the cow and the bear will graze, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den. None of this, of course, can be done now. And we can't bring this about, can we? And especially not on the worldwide scale envisioned by the prophet's oracle. So the coming of Jesus' kingdom is something you and I can neither hasten nor control. So why study this passage, you wonder? The prophetic future, though, relates more than we realize to our present. We can look to the tribulation and the millennium to see how to live our lives now. Believers in the church age ought to care about how believers in the tribulation experience suffering because the same principles apply to our current situation. And believers in the church age ought to care about the reign of Christ on earth because we're designed to reflect that in our present lives now. <clears throat> so prophecy is just as relevant now as it will be in the future. You know, the tribulation saints that we see in the passage that's before us this morning are like the heroes of the faith of the Old Testament. The writer of Hebrews says, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Of course, you realize that Hebrews 12.1 comes after Hebrews chapter 11. That's easy enough. Okay, well, it gets a little more complicated than that, but... You know, the, the author of Hebrews applies this. Hebrews 11, remember, is about the, uh, the heroes of the faith, the Old Testament. Some of them martyred, all of them suffering. And the author applies what he has to say about their faith to our present situation. And so the martyrs and heroes of the faith in the past from Hebrews 11 and the martyrs of the future in the book of the Revelation all have something to teach us about sacrifice and endurance. In our passage this morning, my focus is on uh, verse 4. Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. 
And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Interestingly enough, the future is in the past tense in verse 4. And because John speaks of it that way, I will too, even though you and I as English speakers really want an agreement of tenses, don't we? But these tribulation-era believers refused to give in to the pressure to conform to the world's agenda. They didn't go along with the religious and economic system the world in its rebellion against God was trying to impose on them. And they gave their lives. They made up their minds ahead of time to remain faithful to what God uh, had, had for them and what God commanded, regardless of what happened or who pressured them. And in remaining faithful, these tribulation saints sacrificed everything. They embody the principle the Apostle Paul expressed in his letter to the Christians in Rome. Romans 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good, acceptable, and perfect. Your task is to represent Jesus in your world in your lifetime. You and I, like the heroes of the faith in Hebrews 11, and like those who will come after us in God's plan, must make up our minds to see life from God's perspective. In Romans 12, it's a living sacrifice, which means not every believer gives his life for Jesus. Not every believer is a martyr, but every believer sacrifices. You lay yourself on the altar of God's will, surrendering everything to God's control. Now, right now, the Son of Man, Jesus, is the head of the church, which means He's your Lord now. And being a living sacrifice means that you devote all you are in the service of the Lord. And this isn't just for people who stand up here, the, the professionals. This is for everyone. You're, you and I all are ministers of God. You just may be disguised as something different. You know, I'm disguised as a seminary professor, but you, know, you, may, you may do something else. You, know, you may uh, work in a call center or whatever it is you do. But you can find direction in your life right now in the sure knowledge of what will happen in the future. Now, remember last week we talked about the rapture of the church in 1 Thessalonians 4. And uh, we, we also learned the, the only divinely uh, authorized way to determine how close the rapture is. Remember, it's, if you look at your watch, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. However long you sit there and count is however close the rapture is. Uh, that is, the rapture is going to happen any moment. And that kicks off a seven-year period of time we call the tribulation. That term comes from Matthew chapter 24, verse 24, if you're wondering. 
there's several other places where that kind of terminology appears, but that's probably the key one. And then, at the end of that seven years, the Son of Man suddenly appears unexpectedly and unwanted by the world. And the Son of Man establishes His kingdom. You remember that we studied last week that the Son of Man is the center of God's timetable for human history. And you recall that Jesus used this term, Son of Man, for Himself from Daniel chapter 7. In Daniel 7, the Son of Man is God's agent of judgment. And so, once the reign of man begins... we look forward to that period in which we find our place in His plan. And we can also learn from these tribulation believers who will be there alongside us in this kingdom of God. Let's make a few structural observations first before we tackle the passage and its application. Revelation 20 breaks into four parts. Uh, Verses 1 to 3 verses 4 to 6, verses 7 to 10, and verses 11 to 15. This is about three verses each. Okay? 1 to 3, 4 to 6, 7 to 10, and 11 to 15. Now, we only have time really for the first 10 verses uh, this morning. But I also want you to notice that in those first 10 verses, how central this thousand years is. It occurs in every verse from, chapter, from verse 2 rather to verse 7. Every verse from 2 to 7 has the term thousand years. And the structural clues are in verse, verses 3, 5, and 7. Do you notice in verse 3 it says, such and such didn't happen until the thousand years were completed. Verse 5 says the same thing, until the thousand years were completed. Verse 7 says, when the thousand years were completed. Right away that tells you there's a sequence of events here centered around this thousand year period. And because it's so prominent in the structure of the passage, I think it's safe to say that John intends this to be a real time span rather than some vague designation for... A long time. I mean, if he had wanted to say a long time or forever, he could have said that. Actually, he says that in verse 10 about the, the fate of Satan and his demons, right? Forever and ever. I mean, that's pretty long. And in the Greek, it really says forever and ever. Well, so that means that there's a sequence of events after the Son of Man's second advent. There's, number one, the binding of Satan. Number two, the millennial kingdom, which is the center of this passage. Number three, the release of Satan. And number four, this rebellion. And then finally, uh, the rebellion, let's include in the rebellion, the, the resolution of that rebellion, the final judgment, final removal of evil from the world. There's also in our passage, verses 1 to 10, two resurrections. The first resurrection we see is the resurrection of the martyred uh, uh, dead, the tribulation martyrs. And the second is the resurrection of the wicked dead. It's sort of uh, introduced at verse 5, right? The rest didn't come to life until after. And then that's expanded in verses 11 to 15. Now, we don't have time to get to 11 to 15 this morning, but I think you'll be pretty clear on what happens there. 
So there's two applications from these ten verses. I'm going to kind of break it up a little bit. There's two applications that we're going to come to. See, we're looking to the attitude of these tribulation believers in verse 4. Their willingness to put everything on the line, even dying because of their testimony. Theirs is the example of sacrifice. So, from this passage emerge two applications of sacrifice to us. Sacrifice for Jesus Christ because you know, number one, that your enemy will be defeated. That's verses 1 to 3 and verses 7 to 10. And number two, sacrifice for Jesus Christ because you know the reward that awaits you in verses 4 to 6. So we look to the future to know how to live in the present. So sacrifice for Jesus Christ because your enemy will be defeated. Because you know your enemy will be defeated. Verses 1 to 3. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would no longer deceive the nations. Until the thousand years were completed, and after these things he must be released for a short time. Jesus' return will bring with it the binding of Satan. But in regard to the present, the Apostle Paul, uh, sorry, the Apostle Peter warns us, 1 Peter 5.8, Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. If Satan is bound now, by the way, he must be on a very long chain. <laughs> In the meantime, though, believers have to stand against his deception. You know, deception has been Satan's weapon ever since the Garden of Eden. He deceived Eve, and he's been deceiving people ever since. But in the Millennial Kingdom, he'll be restrained completely, not just on a long chain, did you notice how many elements of restraint were there? There's this chain, he's thrown you into the abyss, and then the top is closed over him and it's sealed. Okay, I'd say he's going to stay in there for a thousand years, wouldn't you? Verse 7, let's skip to verse 7 though. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war, and the number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, and fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever, not just a thousand years forever and ever. Now, uh, before we move a lot, much further here, just let me deal with one detail here. There's some debate over Gog and Magog, what those represent. The only other time Gog and Magog appear in the scriptures is Ezekiel 38, uh, where Ezekiel envisions this army coming up against Jerusalem and God destroying it. I think by the time uh, John is writing the Revelation, Gog and Magog have become 
a shorthand for describing all of the non-Israelite nations. Uh, you notice how it says, uh, who are on the four corners of the earth, and they have an innumerable company behind them. This is the, uh, these are the enemies of God who will be uh, raised up by Satan here at the end. Uh, I think it would be dangerous to try to connect Gog and Magog with any particular political entity now. Uh, <clears throat> I'm sorry if I've ruined your scheme for the end times, but uh, occasionally going to the text helps. Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry, I didn't mean to, that to come across that uh, so much of a zinger, but, uh, you know. Eric, you can attest, I've ruined lots of sermons for lots of students, haven't I? <laughs> well, see, God allows the devil to show his true colors one last time. And even prison for Satan has no rehabilitating effect. He is evil to the core. And when he re- he's released, he resumes his program of deception. Now, this, of course, raises the question: at the end of ta- end of human history, as we know it, at any rate, how people who have lived through a thousand years of prosperity in the earth with a perfect government could be deceived into following Satan in a rebellion? Especially since church age believers and these tribulation martyrs that we've talked about enter the millennial kingdom in perfect bodies, right? Our bodies are transformed both uh, and now even the presence of sin is gone from us. Well, you remember Luke 17 and here's the connection between what I'm saying today and what we talked about in, in Luke 17, When the Son of Man returns, He divides humanity into two basic groups, those who have accepted Him and those who have rejected Him. Numbers we don't. Numbers you can't say. Luke 17, 34, I tell you on that night, that is when the Son of Man returns, there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other will be left. So there are Christians who will survive the tribulation and be alive the moment the second coming happens. Two in one bed, one shall be taken, one shall be left. The Christians are the ones that survive this second coming judgment. And they enter this millennial kingdom in mortal bodies, just like you and me. And they begin the process of repopulating the earth. And as one of my seminary professors put it, John Hanna always used to say this, a professor of church history used to always say, God doesn't have any grandchildren. He said it many times. It's rather profound. It finally sunk in after a while. Oh, I get it. That means that everyone who is born again must be directly born again. It's not if you were, come from a Christian home, for instance, just because your parents are Christian doesn't mean that you're a Christian. Every generation has to make that decision. So God doesn't have any grandchildren. Now think about this. Those tribulation believers who survive, however many they happen to be, 
will repopulate the earth and over the hundreds of generations perhaps that could be born in a thousand years, especially when the infant mortality rate is zero, it could be huge, it could be an enormous number of people born and some of those people will be born, will grow up and will die without ever having accepted Jesus Christ as Savior. It's mind-boggling, isn't it? Jesus Christ reigning right there in Jerusalem. You know, I don't know how often he's going to have press conferences, but I mean, people will, people will be able to see him and talk to him. God's presence will be evident on the earth, and yet there are going to be people who reject him. You know what the problem is? It's, it's us, isn't it? <laughs> Deep down inside, you remember we said last week, the heart of man is deceitful and, dece- and desperately wicked. That's the explanation for this rebellion. But finally, in verse 10, there will be a removal of evil from this universe. I think verse 10 is one of the most compelling reasons to remain faithful to God's viewpoint. The Lord will finally punish Satan for all his interference in human history. Justice will be complete, both in its scope and its duration. Every blasphemy against God, Satan ever perpetrated will be judged. Every wrong he did to God's people will be exacted. The final sentence will be carried out. So sacrifice for Jesus Christ because you know that your enemy will be defeated. So knowing your enemy will be destroyed, we persevere in the suffering we endure. But here's another reason to make sacrifice for Jesus Christ. Sacrifice for Jesus Christ in verses 4 through 6 because you know the reward that awaits you. Let's read verses 4 through 6 again. Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. Verse 4 is the heart of our principle this morning. These heroes of faith of the tribulation, these martyrs of the tribulation have a faith that's for us to be imitated. They are victors by being killed. Isn't that an interesting paradox? They are the overcomers, even though they lost their heads for it. Isn't the truth always stranger than uh, what the world thinks it is? Notice their sacrifice. Those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand. It's a difficult text to translate, really. Uh, If I'd thrown it to my first-year Greek students, they'd be confused by it because it's such a darn long sentence, verse 4. Uh, and, and I saw is really in our English translations of a verb that's supplied several times. 
the verb only occurs once and then he just keeps going on. Yada, 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 yada. That's all what he sees. That is, he saw thrones and the people who sat on them, even the souls of those who had been beheaded and so on, those who hadn't received the mark. Uh, he, he makes this uh, long list of qualifications for these tribulation believers. Verse 6 calls these tribulation believers blessed and holy and says that they have a part in the first resurrection. See, they're called blessed and holy because they have the privilege of participation in the first resurrection. The second one in our passage, of course, is that of unbelievers in verses 11 through 15, those who are raised to stand before the great white throne judgment. Now keep in mind that those people in verses 11 to 15 are not believers. The only reason they're standing before the great white throne is that they, are, they have not accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior. But it's unfortunate that in the English language, especially the words blessed and holy, have been so misused and overused, I think, to have lost their meaning. You know, they almost have this semi-magical uh, power. You know, the holy Ooh. Bible. Okay, what does holy mean anyway? Well, holy means set apart for God's service. You know, there, there are some dishes you only use on Thanksgiving or at Christmas, right? You can't use those for sitting in front of the Super Bowl, right? Oh yeah, pour me a beer and that nice crystal. <laughs> yeah, okay, I don't want to increase any household tension here. <laughs> Whew, yeah, but uh, no, you know, you don't use certain plates for certain occasions, okay? Well, that's really what holy means. You set things apart for God's service. That's what holy means. And as a matter of fact, everyone who has accepted Jesus Christ as Savior is called holy. Believers are consistently called in the letters of the New Testament the holy ones who are at such and such a city. Uh, sometimes we'll use the word saints to describe them, but we're not talking about the football team. We're talking about, or we're not talking about those people who walk, you know, three feet off the ground and wear a halo. We're talking about everyone, you know. But I, I've always wanted to try this, you know. Good morning, my name's St. Will. <laughs> see how that won't fly? But anyway, you see what I mean, though. All of us are set apart for God's service. And the word blessed simply means fortunate or happy. But in the New Testament, blessed is in connection with a right relationship with God. That is, those who are blessed are people who receive a benefit from having a right relationship with God. So these believers who are rightly related to God receive the benefit of their relationship with God by being set apart for the service of the millennial kingdom. And look at what their service is. Verse 6. They will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with Him for a thousand years. Their service will be priests of God and they will reign. Right? That means that they are in charge of 
worship of God and the administration of his kingdom. At last, it'll be polite to talk about religion and politics at the same time. But you know, your level of involvement in this kingdom is tied to your faithfulness. Uh, Luke 19 and 1 Corinthians 3 are two great passages to look at. We won't take the time to study them this morning, but Luke 19 verses 11 to 25 to be more precise uh, is the parable of the minas, you know, the, the, the king who goes off, he gives to each person a certain amount of money to do business with and then he comes back and settles the accounts. And 1 Corinthians 3 is about building on the foundation uh, whether you build with gold, silver, or precious stones, or wood, hay, or stubble. Now, of course, in 1 Corinthians 3, that's really talking about the apostolic ministries, uh, but it has application to us as well. But the principle from those passages is the greater the faithfulness, the greater the reward. The greater the faithfulness, the greater the reward. The, the more you were sold out to God, the more your involvement with your authority, your blessing, your whatever else you want to call it, your involvement in the kingdom of God will be. And faithfulness to God's plan means laying yourself on that altar daily. Jesus said uh, the same thing in a different way by saying that he who follows me must take up his cross and follow me. Now, though believers will be evaluated in the future, no one who trusts in Jesus Christ to forgive their sins and to grant them eternal life will ever lose that status. The Apostle Paul applied this to church-age believers in his last letter when he said to Timothy, 2 Timothy 2.11, It is a trustworthy statement, for if we died with Him, we will also live with Him. If we endure, we will also reign with Him. If we deny Him, He will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. See, the world can promise you anything, but will always fail to deliver on that promise. So you can refuse to submit to this world's agenda because you know that God's plan for you is much better than anything the world could promise. So sacrifice for Jesus Christ because you know that your enemy will be defeated and because you know the reward that awaits you. You know, the paradox of the Christian life is that we die to live, we surrender to conquer, we lose to gain. To accomplish God's plan for us, we must lay ourselves on that altar. But we do it with confidence that God is good and God is gracious. His glory is what counts both in this life and in the life to come. Let me close with the words of the Apostle Paul, the tail end of Romans 8. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, 
nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord.